Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of History Hack with myself and uh, Alex Churchill. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to hand this over to Alex because I'm completely and utterly clueless about this subject. Please do not judge me. Um, as you all very well know, I am a World War II historian, so I'm going to pass this on to, to Alex. So I'm going to let her take the lead. If you start snoring, we are going to virtually kick you. You do know that, right? That's fine. That's not a problem. <laughs> we'll um, kick you on Twitter or something. We'll put a kick Alina button on the website so that if they hear you sniffling in the background. How are you anyway? Are the Polish government not now demanding selfies from you? Uh, yeah, so basically I have to take a selfie a certain amount of time and uh, tag myself exactly where I am in the country. So they're going to monitor if I'm still at home or not. Well, I did, I'm taking my civic responsibilities to ridiculous levels. I just went out to get bread, which is legal, but um, someone walked past me with a giant poodle and I asked the poodle if it had mean, if it had a reason to be outside and it, it responded by licking my shopping bag, which was a bit disgusting, so I was taught a lesson. Um, but its human slave basically said to me, he's an out-out once a day, and I was like, all right, I was only joking. I was talking to a dog. I'm obviously not serious. Um, anyway, the reason that you're bereft today is because we're going World War One, which is entirely my bag. Um, and I've got two really exciting guests with us today because me, myself and other World War One historians, British historians, spend our entire lives inflicting our presence on the people of Belgium while we go about our business um, researching. But what actually very few of us do is spend any time researching the Belgian experience of World War One. It actually happened in their country. So with our first World War One show, I wanted to rectify this. So I've got two brilliant guys with us. We have Gregory Verfei, and you can't laugh at my pronunciation because I tried really hard. Um, Greg, he lives on the battlefields. He, uh, he lives near Polygon Wood. Um, I won't give out his exact address because it's a bit creepy. So uh, he, he lives on the battlefield uh, and he actually, um, for the last four or five years, has been a photographer for the Memorial Museum at Passchendaele as well. Um, hi, Greg. Hello. How is Belgium? Um, beautiful weather, but uh, the circumstances are a little bit uh, difficult. <laughs> are you guys locked down? Are you allowed out? Uh, we are allowed out, but uh, not not as usually. Okay. And with Greg, we have Martial Mascheline. 
who I met last year and was great fun when we were working on D-Day 75 together in Belgium. And he's been a guide. Um, again, he was born and raised in Ypres. He now lives in Ostend. Um, but he's been a battlefield guide in Belgium, talking about Belgium and the war for more than 20 years. Hello, Martial. Hello. Hello, everybody. How are you? How is, uh, can I ask you one thing? Is everybody buying all the toilet roll in Belgium? <laughs> oh, uh, yes. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> what kind of crazy behaviour have you guys seen? <laughs> yeah, that's a very strange um, behaviour because uh, at a certain time uh, there, were, there were some pills, uh, Duffelham here, and uh, people thought that this was, uh, would help against uh, the corona. And so at a certain time, it was all sold. You couldn't find that, um, that medication any, anymore. But uh, then they talked about this in the television and uh, they said, uh, well, this doesn't uh, help at all. And now everything is more or less, well, in a normal situation. <laughs> can, I, can I just ask what these tablets are usually for? What would you normally uh, take them for? Uh, for headaches, for um, infections. Oh, I was really and, hoping uh, it was going to be something ridiculous like indigestion or athlete's <laughs> foot or something <laughs> nonsense that people had fallen for. So, uh, yeah, we have been asking people about their ridiculous corona cures and things that are going around. Um, so, so let's talk history with you guys. Um, so we've had a bit of a chat about this already. Um, I'm really interested to know, and, and Gregory, you were saying, so we were... Obviously, the Germans have the, the Schlieffen plan. Uh, Britain has a plan to yes. mobilise a force. France has plan 17. Uh, I think it's 17. I'm going to look so stupid if I'm wrong. Yes, um, yes, and, <laughs> and, but, but essentially, you were saying that what Belgium didn't really have the means to come up with a big battle plan like that. And, and they were just really reliant on the Germans not invoking the plan to stomp through their country. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, yes, they built uh, lo lots of uh, fortresses, but uh, these fortresses were built uh, actually for the French Prussian, Prussian war. Um, <clears throat> they weren't um, calculated for a war like uh, 1914. Um, the concrete systems weren't, wasn't uh, that good as it uh, should have been. And Martial, what was the state of the Belgian army, it's very small, obviously, um, for obvious reasons, because of the population. But what was the state of the Belgian army and how was it put together before the war? Well, we had uh, a very strange system that um, was used uh, up to 1909. And so the military service, you had to go to the army and it was decided by a lot drawing. And the problem was that, for example, if poor people had a free lot, which means uh, didn't have to serve in the army, that uh, they were approached by sons of rich families. And they tried to buy that uh, lot, that free lot, so that they didn't have to go to the army. The result was that uh, we had an army uh, with a lot of soldiers. In fact, let's say, farmer sons. And uh, there wasn't very much intellectual people in that army but from 1913 on then uh, well between 
1909 and 1913. Um, there was um, military service was compulsory only for one son per family. But then, of course, from 1913 onwards, uh, everybody had to, to go to the army. All the sons of uh, the family had to go to the army. So, and that so was, well, Belgium had conscription, that was, is that right, in World War One? Yes, yes, there were uh, conscripts um, from 1913 on. And, uh, of course, there were also uh, some volunteers that were didn't have to go, but that, uh, that wanted to go. And we also had, um, like we say, uh, some guards here, but uh, in English, I think you say territorials. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we also had uh, uh, an 18,000 of these people that uh, joined uh, the army. But like my colleague said, Gregory, we weren't very, much, very well uh, prepared happened with the invasion? It was over very quickly as far as the Belgian army was concerned, wasn't it, in 1914? Yeah, there's one thing I really like to tell, and this is something I always uh, tell to, especially if I guide for the Flemish people, I, I talk about this. Uh, do you know that uh, the Belgians, they weren't uh, a match for, uh, for the German army, but uh, you know, the Schlieffen plan, they had to get around Paris in six weeks of time, and then they would attack uh, the Russians on the other side. That was the whole Schlieffen plan. But because the Belgians, there was such a resistance here in Belgium, and the German army lost a lot of important time, especially around the fortifications of uh, Liège, like, which means that, in fact, almost they lost almost 12 days the German army to get through uh, that uh, these fortifications, and that was a lot of important time, which means because that because time is absolutely critical for the Schlieffen plan, isn't it? That the yes. idea of it is that um, you you have to knock the the Western Front out immediately so that you can turn and face the Russians. So it, I mean, twelve days is catastrophic, isn't it? It is. And that was important time. And it, I always say, well, uh, the Belgians were they important in the Great War? Well, yes, they were important. They delayed the, the German um, uh, way, let's say, breakthrough through Belgium. And uh, the Germans lost a lot of important time. And uh, in this way, uh, well, the Schlieffen plan, let's say, more or less failed. That's I, I, that's something that we don't consider from this because obviously in on our side of the channel we just think well yeah that that's all over before we even arrive in the middle of August so it's really interesting to to hear that side of it and um, let's talk about civilians for a little while Gregory um obviously the first thing you get when war breaks out in your country is a is a huge stream yeah. of refugees and that was true of Belgium wasn't it people fleeing. Yes, yes, I did. Do you know Belgium had about, an, uh, let's say, more or less seven and a half million inhabitants at that time? We know that one and a half million civilians fled the war in 1914. You can imagine some went to Great Britain, some went to France, and some, of course, a lot went to the Netherlands. And uh, people had, yes. 
And I was just going to say there are some absolutely heartbreaking photographs, um, which I can put up on Twitter, of people handing their babies onto boats, the last boats getting out of Antwerp when all this was going on. I mean, this, this wasn't a sort of reserved manoeuvre by the civilian population. People literally packed up everything they owned and ran, didn't they? Mm, yeah, it is. Yeah, there are horrible fo uh, uh, photographs about that. Um, sometimes we, we forget that uh, there, was a, there were a lot of uh, people from the country with animals, farmers. And what do you have to do? Do you have to leave uh, the cattle yeah, uh, behind? People didn't know what to do. Some of them uh, thought that they could hide in uh, the barns. Uh, and because nobody knew what it all was about, that, that great war, uh, were the Germans, uh, would they be stopped or not? They didn't know. Uh, we knew that we got help from the French and from uh, the British, but nobody could, uh, um, well, didn't know in, what, in which direction this would go. This would go. Um, about... Um, the, um, the refugees, there's one story I like to tell. Um, you know that the, the British, they were talking about the poor Belgians and they really liked and, and wanted uh, to, to help uh, the refugees, just like the Netherlands and just like uh, in France. But as we all know, the refugees, people like to help them as long as they are not too many. This is it's true. like uh, <laughs> like the, the people from Syria now, and you know in the beginning they talked about the poor Belgians, but after a while, after a while they talked about the bloody Belgians. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I I think they give over Alexandra Palace um, or or Earl's Court. It's it's a big big um, space in London to house Belgian refugees coming over but even uh, in the research I did on Eton College so 50 of the the richest boys if you like the sons of nobility um, and the well-to-do Belgian children the boys were sent to Eton College and they were each individual house would take a couple in and and they would live there for free and they'd get some education and this included Prince Leopold who they put in the same house as George V's son Prince Henry because they were the same age um, and and they at first, everybody there, they donated their pocket money, and the, but, but the boys were just hard to deal with. They were so miserable. They just wanted to be at home. They, they didn't want pocket money. They just wanted to go home to Belgium. They weren't interested in being there. And it said that the, the boys lost interest in trying to befriend them, and they lost interest. And most of them actually, I mean, Prince Leopold stayed, but a lot of these 50 or so boys just ended up drifting away from the school and not taking advantage of that offer because it, it, they just couldn't settle. So it was, I mean, and you're talking about huge numbers of Belgians, yeah. many of whom don't get that, um, that generous offer, uh, who've got to try and make do in a foreign country. Yes, that's true. Um, a, a short story. Um, they know our governor, but now he is on pension now. But uh, he talked about, and he also published that, he talked about uh, his grandfather. And he was sent to France, to uh, a school in France, in, this, in the southern part, because in northern France, it was too dangerous. And uh, there were a lot of refugees. So he was sent to the southern part of France. And uh, he wrote a letter. And they had an agreement. Uh, the parents said, um, if you don't like it there, put a cross on the side of your letter. 
if you really don't like it, put two crosses. And if you hate it, put three little crosses on the side of your paper. And the first letter that they received from France, from the Sun, the whole um, site of the letter was full of crosses. Oh, poor, poor kid. Um, so there, there are people that left. Um, actually, we did some work with Eden Hazard at Chelsea before he tragically left us last season um, about his family during World War One, And his family actually stayed, we found out when we did the research, um, that his family stayed and lived under occupation. And Marcel, that's true of your grandparents as well, isn't it? Yeah, uh, my my well, my um, uh, mother's uh, uncle, he, uh, he he joined the army. He was in the army. He was a first uh, sergeant, and um, well, he uh, lost his life uh, in the thirty first of October. That was in the very beginning of the Great War, at uh, the river uh, the Aze. Uh, so he got uh, shot, and uh, he was buried. Um, he had an own grave, but uh, later then uh, the whole area was shelled again, and so the grave uh, was lost. Yes, uh, so my uh, grandmother, she lived in Koperinge, and uh, she was 19 uh, when war broke out. So uh, sometimes she talked about uh, uh, stories about the Great War, and I have a funny story, and I like to tell it. Yes, uh, I wanted to tell that on the coach, but I, I, I thought, well, I won't do it. We are with Americans, and maybe they can't. Uh, they don't think it's very funny. But I, I thought it. <laughs> Give it to funny. us. We've got American listeners. Let's see if you can make them laugh. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, when my mother, uh, when my grandmother, when we were children, my brother and I, and sometimes she told stories about the Great War, and she said, well. We never talked about the British, but we talked about the English. And as she said in Popringen, well, it was full of English and they were very rough. And we say, yes, what did they do? Well, they were cursing all the time on the horses. <laughs> my, brother, my brother and I, we looked at each other. Of course, we wanted to know a curse in English, how that sounded. And uh, we said to my grandmother, oh, yes. A curse in English. What is that? And she said, and she said, fuck. <laughs> so, in fact, in fact, she heard that, and in her eyes, in her ears, sorry, that that, uh, that was a curse. But do you know that in Popperingen, we have several words that changed because under the influence of the English. Because yeah, uh, for the, example, just for those that don't know, uh, this is poppering or pop to the British soldiers. Um, yes, and yes. when Martial says it was overrun with British, it absolutely was. So it was just behind the lines, wasn't it? Um, and uh, all battalions and things going through it all of the time. So his poor grandmother, when she says she was overrun by uh, rude English soldiers, she absolutely was. <laughs> yes, and uh, she had a, a friend, uh, my grandmother, and uh, that friend during the Great War, uh, she got in contact with one of these uh, um, uh, labor companies with Chinese. And uh, do you know that, yes, she got in love and finally she had a child with the Chinese. 
and of course you could see that very well at that uh, child. That's going to take some he, explaining in the middle of Belgium, isn't it? In nineteen eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they had to they had to leave because people didn't want to talk to her anymore. Uh, they were um, uh, ignored by everybody. So finally, this family had to leave Poperingen. Uh, she, she couldn't stay there anymore. People hated the, the, the fact that she had a child with, uh, with one of these Chinese labor companies, men. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's incredible. Um, Another story that my grandmother talked about, that that, that later when we were older, Um, you know, you had all these uh, soldiers from... uh, these uh, armies, also French, and uh, especially the British. And of course, Koperingen, they called it at a certain time, Little Paris, because there were a lot of cafes, brothels, and uh, yeah, everybody wanted to earn some extra money. I was trying and to be, uh, uh, trying to keep it clean, but yeah, Poppering was uh, basically where all the British soldiers went to get laid, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I better not tell my story. <laughs> no, please do. Please tell your story. We'd love to hear it. <laughs> well, uh, she also had two people, uh, let's say friends from before the Great War, uh, that worked as uh, yes in the brothel houses. And there are pictures where you can see that uh, there is a queue of soldiers waiting to go in. Yeah. But of course, it's a, it, it was war and some people had to go to the front and maybe the last day that they lived and uh, they wanted to enjoy it. That's, I think that's very human, I think. Absolutely. Uh, in, this, in this circumstances. So, Gregory, um, tell us about your yeah. family in World War One. Well, actually, um, my grandfather from my father's side, uh, he was a refugee. He, he, he actually is, is born as a refugee. Uh, where was he in France? Um, near near uh, Lyon. Uh, my grandfather, my great grandfather from my mother's side, he was a soldier. Uh, his name was uh, Camille de Leyen, and uh, he was uh, already in, uh, in the army in 1913 as a 20-year-old boy. Um, he served in the Lenny Reg- Regiment. Uh, he was stationed in Ostende or in Ypres, we don't know it, um, but uh, he 
had to go to uh, in August 1914 to uh, the Battle of Grimde. That's what I know about it. And uh, later he had to pull back to Antwerp and then from Antwerp uh, to the Azer, to the Battle of the Azer. Um, he had been fighting several um, several points uh, on the Azer um, and he, he survived the war. So you've both mentioned the Azer now, um, and Gregory, this is key, yes. isn't it? Because this is where the Belgian army went after 1914 and, and where they could be found for much of World War I. And tell us about um, the inundation and what they did to protect that area of Belgium from the Germans. Well, uh, do you know, uh, the Belgians, the Belgian army, and also the British were there at that time, uh, had to retreat from Antwerp. They had to retreat because there was an, uh, an, an army von Beseler that focused on army. And of course, they had to retreat. Some of them retreated in the direction of the coast, but also some of them crossed the border with the Netherlands. Do you know that we lost 30,000 soldiers in the Netherlands? Some by accident, but some deliberately. And then you was, uh, of course, you had to be in quarantine, in a kind of a quarantine, if I pronounce this well. Yeah. Uh, which means you, you could not uh, join uh, the army anymore, although that some tried to do that. But we lost 30,000 soldiers there, and the other one, the other part of the army, uh, retreated to, uh, to the direction of the coast. Now, um, there is a whole story about who uh, the persons that opened uh, the lock gates, uh, because when uh, the, there was a flood eh, uh, in the area of the polders, then they had to lock, of course, uh, the rivers. But they did, they did just the opposite. When there was a flood, they opened the locks so that uh, the seawater came in uh, the country, in, uh, in the polder area. So, um, they had to get as much as possible of that, uh, that water in that area in the Poles, which was uh, in the area of the river, the Azer. But this is a whole story and it's very complicated. But yeah. <laughs> there were two persons, two persons in fact, um, that was Herards, Herards, and the other one, uh, can you help me, Gregory, who was the other one again? Uh, Koche. Koche, yes. Koche. Koche and Herard, and they were responsible, uh, they knew where the lock gates were, and uh, they were responsible for the flooding. Finally, uh, at the end of October, and the Germans already crossed the river, the Azer, and finally the whole area between um, the river, the Azer, and the railway embankment, there was a railway embankment, that area was completely flooded. That also means that the Germans at a certain time that were over the railway embankment, they couldn't get back anymore because the area was flooded. And the result was that they were very, very dangerous because uh, they fired on everything that they saw. And it is exactly on the 31st of October, after the flooding uh, or during the flooding, that my uh, mother's uncle was uh, killed by Germans, Germans that couldn't get back anymore. So uh, the Belgians were more or less safe behind that, uh, that flooded area. 
And King Albert, he always refused, although that he was asked this many times, he was always, but he always refused to put his army in the battles around Ypres. And you can make an understand the reason why. The reason was we had a small strip of, uh, of land over from the country because 95% of the country was occupied by the Germans. We also had one quarter of the coastline, three quarters was in German hands. We only had a little part of land to recruit. So if the king lost his army, then he couldn't, uh, well, he couldn't reinforce the army anymore because uh, we couldn't recruit anymore. Mention King Albert and and he is a colossal figure for Belgium in World War One, isn't he? Gregory, what does he mean to Belgians in World War One? Uh, quite a lot, I, I guess. Quite a lot. Um, he he was actually the, lead, the leader of, of, of the army, so uh, people were just looking up to him. He he was actually already a great person. Marshall would know that. Uh, he he was a huge person, but. Uh, I think that, that he must, yeah. He refused People to leave, didn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. He refused to, to uh, he, he stayed in Belgium. He wanted to stay in Belgium for, for the people. Yeah, so what could, I think his, his attitude was because he couldn't, because they couldn't leave, he couldn't either. So when they were yeah. turned out of the capital, is this right, Marshal? Um, he goes back, doesn't he, to Le Pen and basically sets up a court on, on the beach at these beach villas, these four villas strung together, which unfortunately have gone now and replaced by hideous, hideous uh, hotels or apartment buildings. Um, but he located his court there and effectively, with very few exceptions, refused to leave the country, didn't he? But uh, yes, he was um, um, he was really much liked. And do you know the the, the Flemish are, or, or let's say the Belgians, uh, they were behind the river, and there is there is still a site that can be visited uh, with bunkers and trenches behind the river, and you can see that there are there are pictures made by um, the king and uh, Elizabeth, his wife which means that they were among the soldiers. They were among, and they were sometimes also in very dangerous places. Uh, they she were in was a farm. nurse, wasn't she? Yes, in, and, in the hotel, yeah. um, uh, what was the name again? Do you, can you help me, Gregory? The name of that hotel, in the, uh, that, was in, that they made it the hospital. Uh, Lucian? Lucian, yes, yes. Los Yes. Well, the the uh, key thing about uh, her, I think we have to mention as well, guys, is that she was German, but she was as loved as he was. She was Elizabeth of Bavaria, wasn't she? Yeah. Do you, did you know that her aunt, her aunt, that was Sissi, and Sissi was married with Franz Josef from Austria? I didn't know. But yeah, she, so yeah. She, she essentially went massively out of her way to show the Belgian people just how she was one of them and not a German in World War One, didn't she? And she worked damn hard for the entire war. Yes, yes. She was really, she did anything or everything she could uh, for uh, the Belgian people and, uh, and the soldiers. And there are many pictures that you can see her among soldiers. To round off, guys, um, before Alina literally falls off of her chair. Uh, Alina, are you there? even 
<laughs> I am still here. Don't worry. We're, I am listening intently. I just don't have anything intelligible to um, to comment on. So, Are you learning something uh, about World War One, though? I, I am. Um, look, I am learning about every new subject that keeps coming up. So you know, it's it's all good. Don't worry about me. <laughs> one, just one thing I want to want to finish off with with these guys is one thing that strikes me every time you go to the battlefields as a British person is how much you guys in Belgium, uh, especially uh, Gregory, still living uh, out near Polygon Wood, how much you guys still live with World War One every single day, pretty much, don't you? It, it's everywhere you go it's a tourist industry you're still finding munitions it's not something the belgian people can fully like just forget about ever no totally not we can't we can't forget about it we see it every day and into the into the landscapes or something uh, when a farmer is just working with his uh, with his material when he when he finds some uh, bombs or artillery or something uh, and we still find so many things and you are still photographing the battlefields for the museum, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like not you say. Not for the moment. But <laughs> yeah, not, not till they let you out again. Um, and, and Marcel, yeah. obviously, as well as a tour guide, it's, it's something. How many Belgians do you get doing tours? Um, or do you mostly deal with incoming people, Americans and British? Yes, well, uh, the battlefield tours, most of the battlefield tours are for the British and the Americans. Uh, sometimes from uh, the Dutch also, they are also interested in the First World War. And um, there's also another story, a short story that I like to tell. Do you know, I lived in, uh, when I was a child, I lived in Voormezele. And uh, in the area of saint and that's also, uh, that was also in the front line. And, uh, the um, uh, Canadians uh, uh, were lined also were, were lined up also uh, for a moment there, and uh, my father uh, he was friends with uh, uh, the farmer that lived uh, in front of us, and also had the fields there, and they were in the evening in their free time they were looking on the fields to find some well uh, relics from the Great War. And at a certain time, the farmer came to my father's house and uh, he said, uh, I found a lot of bombs and they have a very nice ring around it. Do you know the band around it in copper? That's right. Yeah, you find those quite often, yeah. don't you, on the battlefields? Yes. And do you know, uh, they uh, tried to get that ring off of it uh, because the copper cost, uh, well, was very expensive at that time. And uh, so they found, uh, I think, a 15 or 18 bombs okay, with uh, such a copper ring around it. And they started to cut off the rings. And at a certain time, they heard something. My God, they were almost petrified. And um, they ran away and uh, as quick as possible. And nothing happened. And a few days later, they decided to have a look on the fields to see what the uh, uh, happened and do you know the whole area around these bombs they had a very strange color because that was a gas shell it's you know what some british um soldiers were doing some clearance and actually suffered the effects of mustard gas didn't they um but you i mean it is still dangerous people have still been killed since world war one haven't they yes even a few years ago, there were in the northern part of uh, Ypres, 
there were some workers you, that were Turkish workers, foreign workers, and at noon they uh, they found some shells at the side of the road and they um, they did something wrong. Nobody knows what, but uh, it exploded and they were killed. A couple of years ago, they found also a lot lot of bombs back in, in Pashinda. Um, that was from uh, an artillery, uh, from a cannon or something. Uh, was standing just behind, uh, nearby the church in Pashinda. They found uh, more than 750 bombs. They needed more uh, than one month to clear uh, the whole field. And of course, bodies as well. You still find bodies in Belgium, don't you? Yes, I still do, yes. Um, that I think so. There's always a handful of cemeteries still open, if you like, aren't there, to relocate um, any, well, certainly as far as Britain's concerned, to relocate any remains that are discovered. And um, we're hoping to get Simon on to talk about his archaeology at some point in Belgium. Um, guys, mm -hmm. have you got anything more you want to add about Belgian experience of World War One? There's another story uh, from the German side. You know, you had here uh, um, Belgium was uh, divided by the Germans and you had the operation zone and you had also and they called it Etappegebiet that was the area behind the uh, the uh, operation zone and you also had uh, the marine area uh, that was divided in, in let's say in, in, in these areas so um, in that Etappe area that was out of the reach of the guns, of course, that was far behind uh, the lines. Um, the Germans, of course, were, uh, well, they uh, governed here. Uh, we had to, to follow the German rules. And I saw a program on television uh, some years ago in black and white from after the Great War. And it was about the school and it was in East Flanders. And uh, there were, it was a school uh, girls, uh, for girls. And that was a school with about 200 girls. And after the Great War, there were 20 girls that had a child by a German. That is 10%. So Wow. They were busy then. They were as busy as the boys in Poppering, is what you're saying. Yes, this is also a part that, uh, in fact, nobody uh, talks about that. that. That you can imagine that these uh, um, here, the young girls and the Germans who occupied here the country, well, that they they start to do. Some of them, uh, of course, become friends. Some of them stay to to hate them uh, for the rest of the war. But uh, this is a, a very a strange situation, and it. it took four years, so you can imagine if a, a country is occupied four years by another nation that they start to get in contact. That is incredible. Listen, guys, um, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about the Belgian experience of World War One. I've definitely learned stuff. Alina has most certainly learned stuff because she knew nothing when we started. Um, it would be lovely to have you again to talk about other parts of Belgian history at some point, if you're willing. But for now, thank you so much and goodbye. Yes. Okay. Thank no you problem. Goodbye. <laughs> Tomorrow we have a treat for you. We have award-winning duo Gareth Thomas and Ben Jones, 
who uh, form the Football History Boys, joining us to chat over some of the most important moments in the history of the beautiful game and to talk about what the most entertaining match in history might have been. So looking forward to that. Until then, stay safe when you possibly can stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.